It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. This is always such a treat for me to be able to interview one of my personal heroes and the person on this show, as far as guests go, who has probably saved more lives than anyone I've ever met. But he did it not by running into burning buildings and rescuing orphans. He did it not by shooting bad guys. He did it through pure activism and by being guided for over a half century by a keen sense of what's right. It gives me great deal of pleasure to welcome for a a gentleman that uh, is a veteran consumer advocate, a best-selling author, a former independent candidate for president, who I've voted voted for multiple times, by the way, the one and only Ralph Nader. Uh, Ralph, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Frank. Ralph, I I know you're not a big drinker. I know you don't indulge in junk food like cake and that kind of thing. This week you turned uh, 89. What does Ralph Nader do to celebrate his birthday? Well, he reads through the family cookbook, (laughs) Good Nutrition. (laughs) It's called the Ralph Nader and Family Cookbook, put out by Akasic Press in New York City. And uh, it's my mother's uh, uh, recipes. You know, they call it now... Mediterranean diet, but my mother came from Lebanon, so it's a really Lebanese diet. And people now love it. You know, they love hummus and baba and and uh, all kinds of combinations uh, that are uh, very low in fat, low in sugar, and low in salt. And uh, that's why it's considered by nutritional scientists to be the best diet uh, in the world among various ethnic diets. And, and you do have a, a nice recipe for cookies in there. If people are in the mood for dessert, you have a recipe for your mom's cookies in there as well. Yeah, you like that, huh? I, I do. I, I haven't. I can't say that I've made that. Uh, uh, my wife is the one that uh, that is the master of the kitchen, but uh, I'll stick with trying to make the lentil soup. It's a really neat lentil soybean soup recipe. All right, uh, Ralph, there's a lot that I want to bring up with you. Uh, for starters, Last time we spoke, you were telling me about this new print newspaper that you launched, the Capitol Hill Citizen. You were kind enough to send me a few copies of it. Well, now you are diving headfirst into the print newspaper business as more and more print publications are folding around the country. Your hometown paper, the Winstead Citizen, was folding, and you came to the rescue with a new print newspaper. Tell me what you're doing in Winstead, and tell me why you think in the era of the internet and getting news on your phone and via email. Tell me why you think print journalism still matters. First of all, uh, our town lost its uh, weekly paper in 2017, and it covered Winstead and five adjoining small towns in Litchfield County. And you can't have a community without a newspaper. Uh, So we looked over the scene and concluded two things. One is that if you started as a 501c3 charity, you get three revenue streams, advertising, subscription income, and charitable donations. And with that model, there isn't any community in the country that can't have a weekly paper. Uh, As far as print goes, increasingly people are turning off 
the distractions and interferences and the ads and the clutter on the Internet when they're trying to focus on a screen. And uh, they, they like the feel of a real newspaper in their hands where they can concentrate, they can clip it, they can show it to a friend or a relative. It's just a different uh, feeling. And I think we're seeing a modest but very real swing away from the Internet gulag. In fact, in your own city, you have several high school students from high schools who formed the Luddite Club. They're throwing away their smartphone, picking up a flip phone, and reading books in real print. I've tried to go electronic-free one day a week, and I have to say, at first, you feel like you're missing a lot, but after a short amount of time, it is pretty uh, peaceful, and you actually feel like you're able to pay attention in a more meaningful way to the articles you're reading when you read these print publications. It's funny because the other— If if you go to WinstonCitizen.org, you'll see that the lead article is Where Kids Get News. And, you know, it's probably not a surprise to your listeners, but uh, the theme of the article was uh, focused on a quote by one of the seniors who's captain of the base basketball and football team. And he said, quote, I don't know any high school student who really reads the newspaper anymore, whether it's online or whether it's uh, in print. So, you know, there's a huge loss here. They lose knowledge of their own community. Uh mm-hmm country they they lose knowledge uh that you know isn't a, a split second uh bunch of phrases and comments etc disconnected from any sequence that links information to knowledge to judgment and to wisdom so we're we're bucking the trend but we just think any any community in the country with charitable contributions advertising revenue subscription can have a weekly paper, and there are just thousands of communities without any any paper at all, whether it's online or or in print. Which is one reason why uh, voting turnouts decline. People don't turn out to public meetings as much because they don't know what's going on. Uh, they're not informed of what's going on, and it's shame on us as a country that we allow all these weeklies to be closed down. The other aspect of media that is sort of, and this is very personal to me for obvious reasons, that is sort of flirting with extinction is AM radio. We're seeing automakers like Ford, Tesla dropping AM radio from their newer electric vehicle models. Now, Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts, to his credit, has been very vocal on this issue, talking about the importance of these auto manufacturers maintaining AM radio. But it's not just him. The former heads of FEMA have talked about the importance of maintaining AM radio so that people know what to do in the event of an emergency. What kind of a a country is this going to be if there's a blizzard or a hurricane? hurricane or heaven forbid an earthquake and people can't tune to their local am radio station ralph uh, so first i heard about it t- t- tell us why they're deleting it in the electric cars uh, you know uh, my understanding 
is that uh, some of the interfere? Well, what they're claiming, I should say, is that some of the interference from the electric vehicle itself pr- causes static, and they're not able to get the AM signals. But according to Ed Markey and others, there is a way to maintain the integrity of that AM radio signal while still putting them in electric cars. Uh, I, I don't know uh, what the what the truth is versus the hyperbole. As you know, sometimes it can get uh, it can get a little uh, tough to divine fact from fiction that is really strange <clears throat> is that true for tesla too yeah for ford and tesla absolutely i want to ask you about uh what's happening with tesla in uh in just a minute but first uh i listen to your radio program all the time the ralph nader radio hour and people can uh get it as well as links to your column by going to nader.org there's links to the ralph nader radio hour and your column and the cookbook that you just mentioned as well as all the other books that you've written recently you did a phenomenal interview with uh, Seymour Hirsch. Now, we were told uh, when the Nord Stream pipeline was, uh, was, was destroyed, we were told all sorts of things. Uh, there was an allegation that it was done by Russia. There was an allegation that uh, maybe that wasn't the full story. Seymour Hirsch uh, is reporting that essentially this could have been destroyed by the United States. I'm wondering if you could talk about that interview with uh, Seymour Hirsch and what this means for the future of this conflict in Ukraine. Well, Seymour Hirsch had a very key inside source uh, that gave him information that belabored the obvious. Uh, Long before the U.S. uh, Navy and the government with uh, Norway involved and others uh, blew up the pipelines, they blew up three out of the four, nor from one, two, three, four. They got three of them. They, they bungled the one on the fourth in the Baltic Sea, 250 feet below the surface, uh, during uh, uh, a so-called naval exercise that we have every year with some of the Baltic countries under NATO. Uh, well, long before that, uh, Joe Biden uh, was asked by a reporter, what is he going to do when all this gas is coming to Germany and uh, Ukraine's been invaded by Russia, so Germany has more money? Uh, He he said, it's not going to happen. And then a little while later, his undersecretary of state, uh, Ms. Newland, uh, told the State Department briefing, it's not going to happen. What do you think that means? I mean, we have had every motivation to cut off the, the sale uh, make Germany less dependent on Russia, uh, depri- deprive Russia of uh, a lot of billions of uh, euros. Uh, and uh, we have these two officials, including the president of the United States, saying it's not going to happen before it happened. Also, to pull off something like that requires extremely sensitive modern technology to pull it off in a covert way and very skilled divers. And there isn't any country around that has both the motivation and the skill to pull something like that off. Russia wasn't going to blow up its own pipeline. Germany wasn't going to blow up its pipeline. Who had the interest? It was the USA. Immediately, the White House said, false, ridiculous, it never happened. Well, you know, they're going to have to eat those words when more leaks out. 
And the damage that the United States has done to global energy markets and to people that are dependent on that energy is really significant. I mean, uh, I mean, I view this as just yet another major humanitarian tragedy that's come out of this Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, speaking of that, uh, the, the president obviously just uh, went to Ukraine and he's pushing for even more funding in addition to the $100, million, $100 billion we've already appropriated. He wants more military aid. Do you think President Biden is making a mistake by pushing for so much military aid for Ukraine? And in general, what do you think the United States should be doing to bring an end to this conflict? Well, both sides, Ukraine, Russia, U.S., they say they want a peaceful solution to this war, that there's no military victory. They want a peaceful solution. But all sides want a tactical advantage by grabbing more territory from each other so they have more bargaining power when and if the peace conferences occur. But the peace conference occurred in the first month of the invasion. In March of last year, Russian and Ukrainian officials uh, with U.S. uh, people there met in Turkey. And they had 15 points. They were moving toward agreement on 15 points, and the U.S. broke it up. They basically said, uh, it's not going anywhere. Go back home. So the U.S., I mean, look at all the liquefied gas tankers are moving out of the East Coast now uh, to uh, Europe and Germany because uh, Germany gets less gas from Russia, so they're buying it from the U.S., so the industry makes more money. Another motivation, by the way, for what was done. By the way, these liquefied natural gas tankers, when they're anchored in bays, you've you got to be very careful of them. If there's ever like an East Ohio disaster, it could blow up a city. I mean, that thing is a time bomb, and they're in all kinds of ports in the U.S. And nobody's talking about how rigorously they are regulated or inspected. Uh, you know, it's so funny that you say that because uh, a walking distance from where I am now, there is a LNG tank that was built 50 years ago this month. It was never filled because uh, the local community became aware of the danger of uh, of liquefied natural gas. And uh, they weren't about to fill this 600,000 barrel tank. And so for the last half century in Staten Island, New York, there's an empty liquefied natural gas tank uh, that just sits there as a giant eyesore that the community uh, has not been able to figure out how to how to tear down. But uh, that's a, a story for another day. But you're, you're so right about that. We're talking with Ralph Nader. Check out his column. Check out his books. Check out the cookbook, especially at Nader.org. Ralph, you had a terrific column uh, talking about what is going to be the 20th anniversary next month of the disastrous war in Iraq. I know very few people, left, right, center, that are still defending our intervention in the war in Iraq. Uh, Essentially, the whole world acknowledges this has been a geopolitical disaster, a humanitarian disaster, an economic disaster. Uh, What do you think the lessons learned for the American people and maybe even the military-industrial complex have been over the last 20 years since this war in Iraq began? Well, it's to prosecute outlaws, uh, war criminals like George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, who lied their way into Iraq. Those are the words used by Ron Paul when he was a congressman. You know, they said there were weapons of mass destruction, and there never was. And, in fact, Bush's own uh, inspector after the invasion 
uh, went there, had access to everything because we were controlling the country, came back to the White House and said, sorry, boss, there are no weapons of mass destruction. So this is a war crime. It was a war against an, a country that didn't, uh, didn't threaten us. A million Iraqis at least have died. Thousands of towns and cities disrupted. Millions of refugees. To this day, chaos, corruption, uh, lack of security for the people there. And George W. Bush and Dick Cheney are luxuriating and uh, making money from all kinds of investments and speech fees and uh, book advances. And uh, Andrew Napolitano, you know, who is a conservative libertarian, sure. the judge who was on Fox for many years, um, stated again that the Justice Department should prosecute Bush and Cheney for war crimes, for a war that was not not uh, declared by the Congress, that immediately makes it uh, an unlawful war under the U.S. Constitution, a war that violated the U.N. Charter, violated international treaties, and they got away with it. I mean, I don't know if they lose a night's sleep over what they did to these poor people, blowing up homes and, and drinking water, electric systems, uh, huge civilian casualties, uh, all kinds of contamination, the environment of the Tigris, Euphrates River, a major source of water. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. Hillary Clinton voted for the war, and after a few years, she was asked about it. She said, well, I think it was a mistake. A mistake for that kind of mass destruction of human beings and country. Would she have said that if there was a war against, uh, say, Ukraine? Uh, if we did that to Ukraine, or if it was done against one of our allies, like Israel, would she call it a mistake? They, they treat these Iraqis like they're subhumans. And, and we have 20th anniversary coming up on March 19th of uh, uh, the Bush-Cheney invasion of Iraq. And it, it should be recognized by the media, and we should do some introspection and some apologies and some regrets. And the people of this country should resolve never again to let an outlaw president plunge the country into a war. Thousands of U.S. soldiers were killed. Hundred thousands were sickened, whether it was sandfly disease or the uh, burn pits that Biden talks about, or other injuries. Uh, millions of families affected in the U.S. by it, trillions of dollars, and we're not going to recognize the 20th anniversary and make amends and make sure that there's public education on programs like yours, so that people understand that. If they don't control the White House, the White House is going to behave like a dictatorship overseas, mm. just like a dictatorship. And, and Doing what I'll it never wants, attacking countries at will, putting in drones, armed drones, special forces. We're operating seven armed conflicts right now. Somalia, for example. Yemen, we're involved in that. Not to mention others. I'll never forget the speech that uh, Joe Biden gave before he voted in favor of the Iraq war resolution, saying he viewed it not as a rush to war, but rather a march to peace and security. And then he praised uh, uh, George Bush for their uh, choosing up to that point a course of moderation and deliberation. I wondered what planet one of us was living on. And uh, it's funny to see how uh, how some of those same lessons have not been learned in any in these seven conflicts that we're waging, uh, that we're waging today.
It gets worse than that. Joe Biden taught separation of powers in that period at Delaware Law School. You take the Amtrak train, he taught separation of powers. He supported a war that was not declared, which is a violation of separation of powers. Only Congress can declare war, not the president, only Congress. So he, he's expert enough to teach it to law students, and he went along with Bush's <laughs> unconstitutional criminal war of aggression. How about that? Uh, I, don't, I don't mean to laugh, but you laugh to keep from crying. Um, you wrote a book about eight years ago that I'm looking at on my bookshelf now. It's one of the best books I've ever read. It's, uh, it's short, and it's packed with information. It's also kind of a citizen's playbook. It's called Unstoppable, the Emerging Left-Right Alliance to Dismantle the Corporate State. And you go through issue after issue that uh, people on the far left and on the far right can work together on without compromising any of their principles. And I frequently bring these up both when I'm with my uncles who might be conservative and liberal and trying to find common ground. And I bring these up with uh, radio listeners when uh, people on the left are trying to demonize people on the right or vice versa. You know, your book occurred to me in the whole debate about who the next House Speaker would be because of the demands of the House Freedom Caucus. And I know probably a bunch of the things the House Freedom Caucus is looking for stuff that you probably wouldn't embrace but there were two that that struck out because they they are things that you have called for through your campaigns and through your columns over the years one is term limits and one is a significant reduction in the bloated military budget i'm curious do you think the newfound power that the house freedom caucus has could lead to some of these left-right convergence issues coming to fruition if they really mean what they put on paper, uh, they they had an agenda. You just pick two parts of it. It's it's not likely they're going to push for a de- decrease in the military budget. I haven't seen any effort by that uh, other than just rhetoric. They do have leverage over Kevin McCarthy, as you implied. And certainly there are a number of Democrats want to decrease the bloated, uh, corrupt, contracting military budget. Uh, but what's what's happened? Well, last year, uh, the Democrats and Republicans got together and they gave the generals more than $48 billion than they wanted. They, <laughs> they expanded the military budget over $800 billion, and the generals got $48 billion more than they even asked for. In the meantime, we're not prepared for the next pandemic. We're not funding the present pandemic. State Departments of Health are starving in budgets. There are people who can't afford health care, and we're adding another $48 billion while you have clinics that don't even have the materials to, to, to treat their patients because of budget constriction. I mean, this is a, uh, you know, as I said, if, if, the, if, the, if, a, if, a, if parents behaved like the federal budget is divided up over half to the military budget, uh, of the whole budget, over half goes to the military budget. If parents behaved that way in the way they allocated the budget for uh, managing their families, the, the parents would be committed. They'd be committed for, for undermining the uh, safety of their children. Uh, we have definite and, and, needs here. There are hundreds of thousands of people here who are dying from preventable diseases, millions injured and sick. The records are clear on that. And we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars blowing up areas in the world or creating more nuclear weapons. We have enough now to blow up the uh, world uh, many times in terms of TNT equivalent, and they they want to put a trillion and a half dollars in upgrading the nuclear weapons. 
uh, they're scrapping the, the nuclear arms treaties with Russia. Russia is retaliating by putting one to start one on suspension. Uh, you know, the steps on the Ukraine war are getting more and more to a bigger war. You know what that happens? If that happens, uh, the stakes are enormous in terms of the world. So they start out giving regular arms to Ukraine, and then the, the, the tanks now are going to be given to Ukraine. And Zelensky now wants fighter planes. As one foreign minister in Russia said, the line between direct and indirect support of Ukraine in the war is being blurred, which is another way of saying we're becoming co-belligerents under NATO, mm. and that could expand and, and drive the dictator in Russia berserk, and he's got his finger on the nuclear trigger. Whatever you think of him, he's got his finger on a nuclear trigger. Obama once said, Ukraine, they're not, they're not a national security concern of us. That's not our concern. Well, it was a criminal invasion, to be sure, but you should bring the U.N. into this. Start going negotiation. Wage peace. Don't just wage war. Wage peace. That takes a lot more political and moral courage than rattling the sabers, which often increases the polls for a president. And according to the former Israeli prime minister, Naftali Bennett, who was in touch with leaders from both Ukraine and Russia at the beginning of the war, both leaders, to your point about that uh, abortive Turkish summit, both leaders seemed ready to be willing to negotiate a peaceful end to this. And uh, you get the sense that that wasn't the United States priority at the time. Uh, Talking with Ralph Nader, you can check out his columns, you can check out his books at Nader.org, as well as the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. There's some great guests on there. I mentioned Seymour Hirsch, but you could also hear Judge Andrew Napolitano and a bunch of others. I steal a lot of uh, our best topics from the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, so you can hear it directly from the source. Uh, Ralph, you've been very generous with your time, but uh, two more issues that I have to bring up with you. One is the fundamental policy debate that has emerged in the forthcoming 2024 Republican primaries. There doesn't seem to be very many differences on policy, with the exception of foreign policy, among the uh, Republican presidential candidates. The one exception to that seems to be entitlements. You have people like Mike Pence, who appear to be leaning towards a run, saying we need significant entitlement, entitlement reform. We need to do something about Social Security and Medicare. On the other side of that, you have Donald Trump, who almost on a daily basis is coming out saying, do not touch these entitlements. Republicans should absolutely not touch the entitlements. How do you view the situation? And without entitlement reform, are we looking at insolvency for the Social Security Trust Fund? What should be done about it? First of all, I don't like to use the word entitlements because people pay in for Medicare. They pay in for Social Security year after year. Entitlements should apply to corporate welfare, like what Tesla is getting, what Exxon is getting. Millions of dollars a day in subsidies to the oil companies, they don't pay anything into it. They just get it straight from the U.S. taxpayer without much discussion, one might add, on Capitol Hill. So I use I don't use the word entitlements except for corporate welfare, which is hundreds of billions of dollars a year. It should be a political figure, but both country, both parties like corporate welfare. It's like a payola system. Uh, now, on Social Security, they haven't increased benefits for 40 years, as John, Congressman John Larson has pointed out repeatedly. The issue is increasing Social Security benefits. Well, how do you pay for it? Well, right now, the Social Security tax 
is capped at incomes of up to 160,000. In other words, if you make 160,000, you get the social security tax assessed. If you make a million dollars, you don't get assessed behind above 160,000. So one thing to do is say, look, just assess people's income regardless whether mm-hmm. it's 80,000, 100,000, 10 million, 2 billion. That that will fill a huge gap in the social security situation. That's one. And the second thing uh on on social security is to ally with a, a private retirement system. Karen Ferguson, bless her soul, when she headed the Pension Rights Center we set up, had a elaborate, uh, but, but very clear plan to establish a universal private retirement system, which would bolster Social Security so people would get input. Europe has something like that. Some of the Western European countries who are often so ahead of us in social safety net, like for children, uh, maternity leave, paid sick leave, paid family leave, at, and all the other things that any civilized society should have, not to mention the richest country in the world not having these uh, social safety nets. And uh, as far as Medicare is concerned, huge fraud, $60 billion a year is defrauded out of Medicare by wow. the, the sellers, phony billing, they manipulate the codes, uh, Medicare has to be dealt with with universal health care, single payer, much much less expensive, huge reduction in administrative bookkeeping costs, uh, billing fraud. Just go to Canada and see. They cover everybody from beginning from birth to grave uh, for about 10 percent of their GOP. We're now at 19 percent of GOP. We have 80 million people underinsured or not insured. And we have 19 percent. How come? Because our system is layered with administrative fat. This is corporate administrative fat, huge salaries, huge overbilling, overdiagnosing, overtreatment, staggering prices for pharmaceuticals uh, by companies which are not allowed to, to, to set those kinds of prices in Canada or all over the world. They get their research and development for many of these important drugs from the U.S. government, National Institutes of Health, Frank. And yet they charge the American people by far the highest price for pharmaceuticals, mm. medicines, than anyone in the world. You can go to Egypt and get a, a price for the exact same drug for one-fifth the price. Why? Because these governments don't allow these drug companies to, to fleece people to have a system of pay or die. Pay for these drugs or you can't get them and you die or you stay sick or you get sicker. American people have got to stop thinking they're the toughest people, land of the free, home of the brave. They've got to wake up. One percent of them can control the Congress as long as they represent public opinion. They know what they're talking about, and they're organized in every congressional district. That's two and a half million people focused on every congressional district on Congress where the decision is made. Congress is our huge lever. If it's used against us, it runs the country into the ground, as we've seen in the last few decades. If it's used for us, the corporate, the corporations become our servants, not our masters. 
I could talk with you all day long. I have pages worth of questions, and I hope you'll come back soon. But let me end with uh, with this. Uh, Jimmy Carter and his family recently announced that he's entering hospice. He's not going to seek any further medical treatment. It seems like he is approaching the uh, the twilight of his his life. He's 98 years old. I think even his harshest critics would agree. He's probably the uh, greatest uh, ex president that uh, that's ever that's ever lived. Certainly in the last hundred years or so. You worked a bit with Jimmy Carter while he was president. And uh, I know he was critical of you when you ran for president in 2004. But I'm wondering if you can speak to Carter's legacy as a president and a former president and what you're hoping to hear in a Jimmy Carter style uh, farewell address. Well, we hope to have a farewell address. Uh, He likes to set records. So maybe he'll set a record for hospice. We hope so. Uh, he he was the most uh, uh, diligent peace advocate of any president in modern times. You know, he, did, he didn't get us into wars. Uh, he always talked about uh, peace, reconciliation. Uh, and so we have to credit him with that. Uh, he also appointed heads of regulatory agencies that were terrific. He once said he wanted to appoint heads that, uh, of regulatory agencies like auto safety and and other agencies that I approve of. I, I, nobody's ever said that on my behalf before. Uh, he also achieved a lot of things. He brought more public lands uh, into more lands into public uh, uh, land control, especially in Alaska. Uh, there is a whole list of his achievements in an op-ed, which you probably read last week in the New York Times. But he doesn't get any credit for that. Uh, you know, they make fun of him. He wore sweaters to keep uh, the, the uh, heating bills down in his home uh, and, and when it's cold. No, I think he's a very underrated. Uh, certainly was the smartest president we've had. A nuclear engineer, farmer, as he used to say, on a, you know, author. He wrote a book a year after he left office. Uh, you know, he physically with Rosalind helped build uh, Habitat for Humanity homes. I I was with him on one occasion, and he he wasn't fooling around. He was right there with the other carpenters. And, I mean, there's never been such a versatile president uh, since Thomas Jefferson. I mean, it's amazing the things, the skills that he had. Uh, So we hope that uh, he's now reading all the praise about him, and we hope people, especially younger generations, will listen and and. up the expectation levels for presidents. You see, if 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 politicians control uh, our expectation level and pull it down, like for Reagan and and Bush and uh, all these people, uh, we lose control. We lose our bargaining power. You say, hey, hey, American people, what do you want from a president? Well, I want a nice guy. Uh, I want a guy who'll uh, cut my taxes and deregulate business and 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 uh, leave us alone. Uh, it, it, what else do you want? Huh? Well, I want a bigger military budget. Well, but what else? Do you, do you want anything like uh, health and safety, universal health care, living wages, breaking up the big banks, a decent tax system uh, to get these tax escapees, super rich and corporations starting to pay their fair share ta- taxes? Do you want Social Security se- secured? Uh, do you want all these things? Well, why don't you demand them? If you don't demand them, they're not going to respond. 
So they manipulate you. I say we're going to cut taxes, but they really cut taxes for the rich and the corporation. Well, say, while oh, borrowing we're going to deregulate. from China. When they deregulate, they take away your health and safety protections. Like saying, right. oh, what? cars don't have to recall your defective cars. That's deregulation. Right. While borrowing money from China to fund the uh, the short uh, the shortfall. You know, Mr. Nader, whenever we speak, whenever I read your column, whenever I read your book, I, I feel somewhat inspired to try to be a better citizen and try to do more. I suspect that many of our listeners uh, feel the same way. They listen to this conversation and they think, all right, well, I want to work towards uh, rooting out uh, Medicare fraud. I want to root. I want to work towards uh, not treating corporations better than people. I want to work towards electoral and political reform. But a lot of listeners, especially a lot of people listening in the middle of the night right now, they may not know where to begin. What advice would you give someone to take the first step in being their own Ralph Nader? How do the people get started? It's really simple. They say to themselves, what do I want improved? They pick out the topics or the causes. Then you look around and say, gee, there are already citizen groups doing this, uh, and they want more membership. They want more volunteers. They want more people in, in your area that they don't have. So there's almost no issue in America that doesn't have a citizen group. You name it. The second thing is, read my book, Breaking Through Power, It's Easier Than We Think. We have all kinds of examples of where a very few, small number of people made a huge difference. We had less than 1,000 people working with us around the country. We got the auto companies regulated in 1966, and millions of people were saved, lives, injuries. Uh, less than a thousand people. Why? We, we knew what we were talking about. We focused on Congress. We didn't just have rallies and where the energy went into the ether. Uh, we went up and down, connecting senators, representatives, congressional committees, the press, reporters. So read history of success. If you read the history of the success and justice movements, whether it's cutting back on air pollution. Uh, whether it's getting safer food, whether it's civil rights, civil liberties, you'll see a handful of people leverage the whole operation. That's always the way it is. Very small number of people knowing what they're talking about, representing uh, public opinion, and knowing where to put the pressure on where the decision is, state or city council, whatever. There's never any excuse, never any excuse for a frank we're going to have to end it there. I appreciate you being so generous with your time. I look forward to our next conversation, and happy birthday. Thank you very much, Frank. Thank for your knowledge that makes it a, a rich dialogue. You you read more than any other talk show host I've ever had. Well, that's very kind. Thank you very much. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.